0: I really want, especially since it's targeted at young adults, I want them to understand through Gabe's character just what it takes to be a caregiver and how important it is, first of all, and how unsung of a hero you are if you actually do it. I just wanted to be able to to let them see what it would be like to be that kind of a caregiver, even if they wind up becoming a person who just happens to see their parents living through it so that they can understand the rigor that goes behind it.
1: Hi, everyone. This is the AgeWise Podcast.
0: Your assumptions are going to be turned somewhat upside down. When
1: well, we talk about aging well. It's an issue that nobody wants to talk about. And wisely.
0: I was totally unfamiliar with the term caregiver. You really learn what you're capable
1: of. I'm Jana Panaritis. The phrase, I feel like my life is on hold, is one I've heard many times from caregivers, but mostly from caregivers who've already lived a few decades of life and formed lasting friendships and had careers, even if those careers and friendships have been put on hold due to the demands of caring for someone else. What happens when you haven't even started a career and you're still forming your identity? And figuring out who your true friends are when tragedy strikes and suddenly your adolescent self becomes a full time caregiver. This is the predicament of youth caregivers, 8 to 18 year olds, who don't go to sleepaway camp on summer break and dread going back to school at the end of the summer because that means going back to the pressure of juggling caregiving with homework, never mind hanging out with friends. In the United States, about 1.4 million kids face this predicament, and it's a predicament that's all too familiar to 18-year-old Gabe Lascuda, the protagonist of a new novel by Frank Morelli called No Sad Songs. Frank's fiction has appeared in more than 30 publications, including the Saturday Evening Post and Philadelphia Stories, and his sports theme column, Peanuts and Cracker Jacks, appears monthly in Change 7 Magazine. Frank Morelli has been a teacher, a coach, a bagel builder, and a stock boy, among many other things. But today, he's here as an author to talk about his unique coming-of-age story, No Sad Songs. Frank Morelli, welcome to the AgeWise Podcast.
0: Thank you so much for having me on the podcast, Janice.
1: Well, before we get into the book, I would love to know a little bit about you, and I think the listeners would, too. Tell us uh, about where you're from. Uh, Did you grow up in Philadelphia?
0: I did grow up in the Philadelphia area. I was born in Philadelphia. Most of my family members are from the South Philadelphia area, and some of them still live there. And when I got to about school age, I moved into South Jersey, which most people around there would tell you is is like a stone's throw from, from Veterans Stadium, basically the fields, for the Eagles and the Phillies and all okay. that stuff, so Philadelphia was was always a huge part of my life. Obviously, I lived there for about twenty years before I moved away, and you know it was one of the things I wanted to bring into the book is this kind of of a, a blue collar town, and I think a lot of my characters are blue collar in nature. But I didn't, you know, I, that's not my only experience. I I also moved to New York City, mm-hmm. and I uh, worked in publishing for a little while, and I got into teaching. And to be honest with you, teaching has probably been the one vehicle that's carried me further than any other as, as a writer. Because um, I've, always, I've always been a writer. I've always kind of pulled around and put together different pieces of writing and, and I tried to improve the, the plot lines of video games and all kinds of things like that. But you know, I really started to take it seriously when I became a teacher and I started to, to teach writing. And I eventually moved to North Carolina where I live now, right outside the Greensboro area. Um, I teach at a really great private school here, Westchester Country Day School, and my students and I would really get into to workshop style writing, sharing their work with each other. So all these experiences definitely helped me to become the writer that I am, and to actually continue pursuing it harder and harder to the point where I actually was able to break through and have a book out there.
1: Were you teaching as well in New York, or did you start when you left?
0: I did. I actually. I actually became a teaching fellow in New York City, so I didn't have any teaching experience at all. At oh. uh, the time, when New York City public schools were, were really in dire need of teachers, and I decided I was just going to give it a go, and I never looked back. Uh, I've been doing it for 15 years, and basically trying to build up my writing credentials, and you know, eventually have a novel out there basically the same amount of time that mm-hmm. I would consider like where I was seriously thinking about it. so the two sides of my life I think are really complementary
1: mm-hmm. and you were teaching English slash writing in New York and what yeah. are you teaching now?
0: Yeah. yeah I'm a middle school teacher Like by trade I always tell people and <laughs> it's kind of like a decision that you make <laughs> in your life and uh in in middle school, they oftentimes call it language arts. Mm-hmm. Um, my, the school where I teach now, it's split up into literature and language arts. So you know one of the courses is a writing course, and one half of the course is, is reading novels, which, again, as a writer, kind of gets right into what I do on a daily basis anyway. So right. being able to share that with, with young students, and having them derive me and inspire me has been really helpful.
1: Yeah, I'll bet. So let's talk about the book. Um, if you could just maybe set it up for us and uh, tell us why you chose to tackle this subject uh, in a young adult novel.
0: Well, the book is about an 18-year-old boy. He uh, loses his parents tragically in one of the early chapters, and then he's kind of left with his grandfather, who his parents had been the caregivers for, and he has a, a rare form, kind of a rare form of Alzheimer's known as Pick's Disease, And he decides that one of the things that he wants to be able to do in his parents' honor is to continue honoring what what their promise was to his grandfather. So he becomes the caregiver. And he realizes pretty quickly that this is a job that is is not for the meek. And he tries to spend a lot of time juggling the normal routines of, of, of a teenager and, trying to just fit in and and just be a normal kid who's 18 years old and just trying to figure out what his life's going to be like with the anchoring tasks of having to figure out his grandfather's medication schedules and when he's going to take him to the doctors and how he's going to do other even less desirable actions in the life of a caregiver. Mm -hmm. And what he finds out basically along the way is that he can't do it by himself. And he winds up kind of having it forced upon him where he has a pretty nice support group of friends and other family members that come into play and the story really was inspired by my own life. Um, I wasn't a caregiver myself. I recently had an, an interview with WUNC, and, and I talked to somebody who wasn't a youth caregiver. And mm-hmm. one of the things she said to me is, like, you know, when, when you're a youth caregiver, sometimes you don't even realize that you are.
2: Mm-hmm. So I, I
0: would say that I, I never realized that I was involved in this when it was happening to me. I was around the same age, a little bit younger than, than what my protagonist is in the book. I was around 16 or 17, and my grandfather uh, we started to notice some changes in him, and eventually he was diagnosed with fixed disease himself. Yeah. And we started to just watch him slowly deteriorate. And the whole time, my parents uh, had taken on the role of caregiver for him. So I watched them kind of just, especially my father, because it was his father. I watched my dad basically take care of the man who had raised him. And seeing that reversal, it always stuck with me. Uh-huh. And there was always this little bit of guilt that was left for me, because, and I think maybe every caregiver feels this, of, did I do enough? Could I have done more to help? You kind of get to a point where you realize you're not going to save the person's life, but you do want to be able to make them as comfortable and have as much dignity as possible. Mm-hmm. But after the fact, I always felt like there was, there was some guilt there, and I wanted to explore what my parents' lives were like during that time through my character since I really didn't, you know, I was kind of more a fly on the wall at the time. I, mm-hmm. I helped out where I could. Mm-hmm. But eventually I, was, I became college age and then I didn't live at my parents' house anymore. So I know that they continued doing the duties without me there. So I just wanted to live through the character and that's basically where the book came from. Uh-huh. Um, in fact, before I wrote this book, I had, had never even written any kind of young adult literature at all. I'd been really? writing well, mostly for uh-huh. adults. Uh-huh. Yeah, so the first chapter was the first piece of, of writing that I had ever done in the genre. Uh-huh. And as soon as I wrote it, I thought to myself, Wow. I should have been doing this all along. Uh-huh. <laughs> I teach these same, same age That's students, right. and it all just kind of came together, and, and it happened to be about a subject matter that was just, that was really close to my heart, so I just knew that the book was, was the right book for me to write.
1: Right, so your grandfather was living with you growing up? Or? Not not the whole time I was growing up. Oh, he moved up. in. By, by the time I was like... 17
0: or 18. Right okay. When I was about 16, he moved from Philadelphia close by so that my parents could keep an eye on him. And then, more, little by little, I it see. became more of a, of a live situation and, and all kinds of other people that we actually had come in to help as well mm-hmm. um, until we eventually had to put him into a facility, which was sad. And again, I know it left the bitter taste in my father's mouth because he never really wanted that to happen, but eventually he had no choice.
1: Yeah. When we meet Gabe in the beginning of the book, is anyone except his best friend, John, aware of his caregiving situation with his grandfather? Because I didn't get that they were. I mean, anyone in his school. And that wouldn't surprise me because caregiving is such an isolating experience and then it's high school. So it's not like he would really talk about it.
0: Yeah, exactly. When I I wrote it, I wanted it to kind of feel kind of organic because that's kind of what I remember about it. One of the things Uh I tell people is that this is a type of disease where a lot of people are living this in secret, and they're taking care of their loved ones, and it's not something that you're you're shouting out from the mountaintops because there's a couple of reasons I think. Especially one of them being that you want to save the person's dignity, and other people may have known that the, the loved one that you're taking care of the way they used to be, and it's, yeah. it's just kind of hard being able to to expose that. So I wanted people to understand that a little bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, John definitely knows about it because of his proximity to Gabe. But, yeah, nobody else is really officially knows about it, and it's just kind of, I tried to make it feel like it was the type of thing that people somewhat were gathering and understanding, where you start to see people in the book treat Gabe differently, and even they feel a little bit of resentment about that. Like, how do these people even really know that this is happening? Why are they treating me with kid gloves, man, that they kind of this? Which I remember feeling tough when I was at that age and trying to deal with this. And, and I also remember that at that age, unfortunately, feeling like, a little bit selfish about it and feeling wow like i'm now going to be seen around town with my grandfather what might he do in this situation how that embarrassed me i remember also feeling kind of guilty about that so i wanted to try to set up a situation for gabe where he didn't tell people about it purposely and that people did kind of gather that something was happening in his life something different was happening i mean they, they surely must have known about his parents passing away so mm-hmm. they knew that there was definitely something different happening in gabe's life but he was not officially telling them about it, so there was this wall between them. He wouldn't want to really let people in.
1: And I kind of got the feeling that some of his resentment was over the fact that he was really not able to grieve after his parents died. He was sort of thrust into this role that is so familiar to caregivers who are just unprepared, first of all, at any age, to be in charge of someone else's well-being, but then on the heels of the death of his parents, he's really not able to grieve. So it seemed like some of his resentment came out of that as well. But maybe I read that wrong.
0: No, you're definitely right about that. There was some resentment coming out of the fact that yeah, he could not grieve. And, and part of his grieving process was maybe what led him to be so hands-on with wanting to take on this role. And you right. know, even when he kind of could tell when it, he wasn't really fit for it, he mm-hmm. was going to continue to live up to this promise that was an unspoken promise. It was only one that he was trying to keep to his parents because in a way that was what kept his parents close to him, yeah. He never really had the, the chance to see his parents off.
1: Right. Can you tell us a little bit about Pick's disease, and how does it manifest?
0: Well, from what I know about the disease, and, I, and remember, I'm not a doctor. From from, <laughs> from my research and from my experience, one thing I learned about it is that it's one of the forms of dementia that you can actually get pretty early on in life, in this case as early as 40 years old. My grandfather was about early 60s, and he had it for eight years, and, and, and it is wow. kind of a slow-moving Disease that could last up to you know eight ten years, which is kind of devastating. Yeah. And I remember feeling like during many many parts of it, especially the latter stages that that he was in, it was almost like wow, I can't I can't believe he has to continue to deal with this disease for this long. But some of the, the different behaviors, everybody kind of deals with dementia differently. But a, a lot of withdrawn symptoms. My grandfather, for example, he used to be pretty talkative guy. And one of the first signs that we would notice is that when he would come to, like, a family event, we'd kind of just sit in the corner and we wouldn't really hear him talking a lot. And that was really before we even gathered and really, like, accepted, like, wow, there's something different happening here. Later on in the disease, from personal experience, I noticed that there's lots of, like, more violent type of outbursts. Mm -hmm. My grandfather would say things that I would never repeat and I'd never heard him say before or even think about and some of those things I tried to reflect in the character of Grandpa in the book, especially one of the early chapters when Gabe has a couple of outburst situations that his, his friend John helps him with that I <laughs> guess you can look at it as comical, but also there's a really sad element to it and a pretty disastrous element to it. I don't want to give too much of it away, but, yeah. but pretty early on in the book, you start to see those symptoms. In fact, I tried to start the book and start, grandpa the character in one of the the stages that I remember towards the end of my grandfather's mm-hmm. disease because I felt like that was the most severe. Mm-hmm. And to have my character immediately have to go into that right off the bat I felt felt was was the kind of conflict that this book needed. But as far as pick disease, um I can't give you any real statistics about it about how many people actually have the disease and I don't have any in front of me right now. But it's not as prevalent I've gathered as other forms of dementia. It's on the rarer side, but numbers are definitely growing at all forms of dimension. So Mm -hmm. it would definitely be one form that I think people should probably be researching and taking seriously because I would never want to see any other person have to deal with what my grandfather
2: did.
1: Mm. Well, you touched on the structure of the book a moment ago. I'd like to continue on that path for a moment and have you talk about the personal essays that are interspersed through the book, which is a really nice device. I hate to use that word, but I know that was calculated. (laughs) It's really brilliant. I think these pages are actually a different shade than the rest of the book. Those pages are not numbered. So if you could talk a little bit about the use of those personal essays in the book.
0: Sure. And and I definitely don't mind you using the word device. Um, They were definitely a calculated move. First of all, let me explain the reason why they were given to Gabe and why he writes them. Most of the book is written as narrative, and and Gabe tells his story in pre, in present time. Mm-hmm. But the essays are part of a project that he's working on in in class. It happens to be his favorite class, and he's learning about different classic poets in the class. Mm-hmm. And his basically year long or pretty long project throughout the year is for him to write personal essays that relate the poetry that they're learning to experiences in his life. So one of the things I wanted to be able to do is include some first person personal essays in there that brought Gabe's story back to the time when he originally remembered his grandfather
2: mm-hmm. and moments
0: that they shared. So that you can kind of see the difference between who grandfather used to be and who he's become. Mm-hmm. So you can kinda of live that experience with Gabe as he's taking care of his grandfather and then at the same time remembering like, hey, you know, this is the reason why I'm doing it. This this is the man that, you know, was around, had all these different important points.
2: Mm-hmm. And then
0: the other part of that is being able to show a couple of different sides of my character. One thing that a few people have, have mentioned to me since I released the book is that are the two different voices that I used in the narrative versus any essays that Gabe writes. And really, I, I was very deliberate in trying to do that. It's hard to make one character write in one voice and talk in another voice. Yeah. Um, I spent a lot of time trying to make that happen. And it, you know, the difference is subtle, but it's important because you get to see how Gabe reacts in real time. But then you also get to see how he reflects on things and how he learns from the experiences that he did have in the present time and then also in the past. So I wanted my readers to be able to understand, first of all, the utility of doing that. Second of all, be able to have some experience and exposure with with some classic poetry and how that relates to our lives. And then trying to tie that in with some of the music of the time that both Gabe and his other friend Sophia talk about throughout the book, and to me, I loved writing the essays. is probably my favorite part of uh-huh. the entire project because <laughs> it allowed me to just create this backstory. And it allowed me to kind of just relate the two different sides of of Gabe as well as the two different people that are Grandpa in the past and Grandpa now.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's really a nice device for the reader because they get to know your characters, and especially Gabe. We get a window into his life before he was a caregiver. And that's a really nice juxtaposition. There's a lot of poetry in this book. Clearly, you're a fan of poetry. I like how you (laughs) use poetry to... Talk about care and how we might choose to view dementia. You use Dylan Thomas do not go gentle into that good night. it's It's really subtle but beautiful. Do you teach poetry? Uh,
0: about- I often do, and you know I change my I change what I do each year, but, uh-huh. but for example, this year, we happen to to be doing some Shakespeare. And we talked about a lot of Shakespeare's sonnets, a few of his sonnets. And then we actually tried to write sonnets in the class just to kind of understand how poetry is more than just the words. There's also a lot of craft that goes into this and technique. And And uh my students were really surprised by how difficult it was to write, to write a short poem like a sonnet and, mm-hmm. and how long it took them to do it the right way. But when they were finished, they really understood a lot more about language, how you can use structures of words, how you can switch things around. So I'm always kind of fascinated by that. I don't really write a lot of poetry myself, but
2: mm-hmm.
0: I, I guess I used to write some really terrible poetry when I was younger. <laughs> but I would say that like, I, I feel more comfortable as a prose writer, but some of the elements of poetry are always right in the back of my, my mind when I'm writing prose sentences because I feel like there has to be something poetic about anything that you write. As a teacher, I also know that students, whenever you mention poetry, there's like a few groans in the Uh back of the class and some eye rolls. So I wanted to be able to put it in a a perspective and attach it to this character who you kind of have to admire when you're reading the book. And he is kind of cool, even though he's not perfect in, in a lot of ways. And I wanted them to see how this particular Gentleman Gabe is a lot different from his classmates. who kind of trash poetry th- throughout yeah. his experience yeah. in, in, in the book, but he he kind of defends it. And uh-huh. uh, it was interesting. Right after I released the book, I showed up in class, and and one I you know I kind of thought, all right, maybe it might be weird when one of my students has my book in front of him, which happened. But the the coolest thing was actually seeing a student instead of having my book, had a book of Robert Frost poems that they had picked up because they wanted to explore more of the poetry. So that was one of the reasons why I wanted to do that. The other reason was because there was a point in my life where I found poetry really difficult and, and too hard to even, to even want to like attack and delve into. Mm-hmm. But I think music and lyrics kind of helped provide the gateway for me. Yeah. Cause there is such yeah. a connection between them. And I think that eventually allowed me to kind of look at some more complex poetry. So that's another reason why I like to put some of the songs in there too, to just kind of show that connection between the two things. Cause it's I know that teenagers love music.
1: And this is set in the 1990s, right? The book?
0: It is. Okay. It is. And, and, uh, a lot of people asked me about that decision, and it, it was a hard decision because I know that writing young adult literature, it's usually something that it most commonly is written in the present time words written in the past as historical fiction and I don't know that the 90s is really in in the area of historical fiction yet so I wanted to set it then because that's when I lived through the experience myself Mm -hmm. and I wanted to be able to be most equipped to tell the story and like I said the whole point of me writing it was to live through it in a speculative nature and to feel my way through gay experiences And I just didn't feel like I could do that authentically in the present time period because I just didn't live it in, in this time. And I also wanted to provide a book that was kind of unfiltered from text messaging and all the things that could also make things even more complicated, just to kind of really hone in on on the human element here. So
2: that's
0: the reason why I went into the 90s. And then selfishly, I went into the 90s because I just loved the music and and Uh the styles of that (laughs) Uh time. So Uh I just wanted to kind of revisit it a little bit.
1: Yeah. Well, maybe this is a good time to read a passage from the book. If you'd like to, read a passage from the book.
0: I like to read one of the personal essays that happens to be one of my, one of my favorites that I wrote and it deals with baseball as well. And kind of shows the connection between the three generations of Lascudos, which is Gabe's last name and his, his grandfather, his father and himself and kind of sharing this uniquely American moment. So this is the second personal essay in the book. It's called leather and pipe tobacco. Put your face in it, Gabe. really get your nose in there. Grandpa slid the glove off his weathered hand and dropped down to one knee. There was a twinkle in his eye. The sun sparkled off gray strands that poked out from beneath his brown mane. It was the first time I ever saw him smile, even then, it had looked pretty hard as he fought to banish it from his face. Dad stood a few steps behind, silent, a goofy grin plastered on his face. It was like they'd already shared this moment and relished in their chance to relive it, like they'd been waiting for it to happen every day since the last. Go ahead, Gabe. Give it your best stuff. I pushed the heavy piece of rawhide against my frail chest. I took hold and slipped my left hand inside. It felt slick with Grandpa's sweat. My fingers barely reached the holes they were destined to fill one day. Gramps and Dad had spent most of the morning pounding their fists into the pocket, slathering it with oil, contorting it into all sorts of painful-looking shapes. Grandpa pushed the glove up toward my face. Go ahead, son. She's yours now. I inhaled, and my lungs were filled with the rich scent of tanned leather, the defining moment that lures a youngster to the game from the very first time his hand reaches inside a mitt. My eyes bulged and my mouth puckered into a tiny three-year-old hoe. There it is, Dad. You see that? Gramps and Dad burst out into proud and joyous laughter. Grandpa tussled my hair with an aging hand and the scent of pipe tobacco mingled with the lingering glove leather. He pinched my nose between his knuckles and says, Don't forget to keep your nose clean now, kid. It was the first time I ever heard him utter the phrase, Let's toss the old ball around, Grandpa said once the moment had been thoroughly savored. Dad and Grandpa pulled their gloves cracked and scuffed by decades of use out from the backs of their waistbands. He slipped them on. And pockets a few times with clenched fists. Watch him learn, Gabe, Grandpa said. as He flipped his sidearm, tossed over to Dad, who squeezed it in the pocket and covered it up with his throwing hand. Always use two hands. Your father learned that lesson a few times. Dad shook his head and kept throwing. Put the ball into the glove. For Pete's sake, stay in front of the damn thing. The ball, not a bomb. Dad shook his head again, but kept throwing and catching. Now it's your turn. Grandpa knelt down and put his hands on my shoulders. He jostled me around a bit until I was in the right position, and then he took a few steps back and held the ball out in front of his chest. You ready? I didn't know what to say, so I just nodded and held my glove in front of my face. My eyes barely peeked over the webbing. Here it goes. And Grandpa wound back and tossed the ball. The top half caught the sun and gleamed in white. The bottom half was the dark side of the moon. The laces flipped and twirled, and I fought hard to keep myself from jumping out of the way and disappointing Grandpa. Then I felt Leather made contact with Leather. The weight gathered in the pocket. There was a soft snap as my bare hand clamped over the front of the glove, which is, look at that, my grandson's a natural. The next Willie Mays, Dad said. The next Willie Mays. I often think about moments like these, the ones that feel so light and carefree at the time, but that carry with them much heavier insights. It's only in the future, after time has beaten the ever-loving crap out of you. That you realize what was actually taking place on a day like that, And it reminds me of one of Robert Frost's most famous poems, which also happens to appear in my, one of my favorite books of all time, "The Outsiders." I may have read Essie Hinton's most popular book way back in middle school, but I will never forget the sage insight Johnny Cade gives the pony boy through Frost's words. They still ring in my ears. "Nature's first green is gold, her hardest shoe to hold," her early leaps a flower, but only so an hour. Then leaf subsides to leaf, so Eden sank to grief, so dawn goes down today. Nothing gold can stay. When the ball popped my mitt that day, so many years ago, when I could barely see over the shoulders of a cricket, and I squeezed it before it flipped lifelessly to the grass, I held on to more than just the ball. I had held that gold in my hand, the hardest hue, and Gramps and Dad recognized it immediately, for they had once held the same hue in their own hands, their appreciation for the gift that had been mysteriously stolen from them. Their youth was the catalyst for all the smiles and laughter these two produced in my honor. But for them, that first youthful hue was far behind them, just a distant blip that wouldn't even register on a satellite image. For them, dawn had long ago gone down today, and the only gold they'd see again would exist within the DNA they had passed along to me. These days, I'm not even sure I possess the here anymore. I'm 18 years old, and for me, the light is already starting to fade, but I'm lucky. For Gramps and for Dad, men whose youth and energy once injected jolts of electricity into anything they touched, the flame has already been extinguished, and nothing they or I or even God could do would ever change that fact.
1: And that's an excerpt from the novel No Sad Songs by Frank Morelli, reading from his novel. There are lines that keep coming up. One I was thinking that you read was, keep your nose clean. (laughs) <laughs> um that Gramps says but one one of the things I wanted to ask you about or have you talk about was this theme of paying a debt and sacrifice and especially in Gramps in his war service in Nick too, eventually. Paying a mm-hmm. repaying a debt. Because that's a theme that comes up a lot. I wonder if you could just talk about that a little bit. Yeah, I feel like
0: anybody on this planet is in some kind of debt to somebody. Because at some point somebody's helping you, somebody has raised you, somebody has provided something for you, somebody has brightened your day, so I always like I always feel like debt isn't as bad of a thing as people make it out to be, and sometimes it's important to remember that other people are also indebted to you. so I wanted to kind of have a bunch of characters who at least realized even if their situations were difficult, that they wanted to be able to accomplish them because it would have helped other people who had once helped them. Mm-hmm. And yeah, Grandpa, I wanted to make sure that he was some kind of a war veteran and that he had paid, you know, paid his debt to the society in that way. Mm-hmm. Because I knew that in order to have this character in the novel that doesn't really have many lines or doesn't really speak a lot in the present time, I mean, he's kind of this flat you know character in the background in the present. But when you read through Gabe's essays and find out about Grandpa's past, you find out about how much this guy has done for his country, for his family, and for his grandson. So yeah, and he sacrificed many times. Uh you find out how grandpa also sacrificed to help Uncle Nick try to get an education and he floundered that. So now he winds up having a debt that he owes to grandpa as well and also to the rest of his family. So I wanted to just create these characters that were able to understand that they did have a responsibility to pay for mm-hmm. what they had not been able to do prior. And for Gabe, it doesn't seem like he has that much of a debt to pay throughout the novel. but if you really think about it, he owed everything to his parents, and his parents really made his life pretty comfortable up into that point, until his life becomes extremely uncomfortable. It makes him want to be able to accomplish the goal of like, making his grandfather's life okay. Which, of course, winds up becoming a conflict for him as well, because in the case of Alzheimer's, there's eventually nothing he's going to be able to do to
2: stop yeah. it. So yeah.
0: that's why I wanted to make my characters have these gifts and these sacrifices that they were going to make throughout.
1: Mm-hmm. And one of the discoveries that Gabe makes along the way is he has this sort of newfound respect for his dead parents. He says, you know, they were complete badasses. In caring for his grandfather, uh, he says, but at least they had each other. Here I am trying to figure it out on my own, which is so moving. And then he wrote, "Ugh, I feel like mom always juggling." I mean, if that isn't a line <laughs> that caregivers won't relate to,
0: <laughs> I'm so glad that you said that's exactly when I was that, when I was rambling through that. that was exactly what I was, was thinking about that exact passage where he talks about the jugglers in Baltimore Harbor and trying mm-hmm. to to understand just how much his parents did for his grandfather, let alone also being able to take care of him and do all the things they need to do in their work life yeah. as well. And then I also think that Gabe winds up finding out that his friend also kind of owed him a debt. He, he kind of tried to keep him out of helping him. And his friends eventually forced their way into helping him. And it makes all the difference in his life.
1: You did such a great job of representing the various accessories that are needed if you're a caregiver. Like Gabe keeps a paper cup with him everywhere he goes in case his <laughs> grandfather needs to give him a pill on the run. Are these <laughs> are these things that you witnessed in your parents, or just sort of stuff you picked up in your research?
0: Yeah, there's definitely things that, especially my mom. My mom is the kind of person that is ever prepared for everything. She carries around this gigantic bag, and I I swear that it's like. Hermione's bag maybe Uh you can reach in and pull anything (laughs) out of there Um, so she would have all kinds of different things and it always seemed like whenever my grandfather needed something or something happened she always had whatever she needed in the bag Mm
2: -hmm. and then later
0: on when I was writing this and researching it I I called my parents often to ask them questions and I mostly wound up getting a lot of information from my mom Uh Um, for one reason my dad I don't know how comfortable he feels talking about the whole entire situation since it was his, his father he doesn't really like divulge a lot but my mom seems to remember every like detail that happened so she helped to, j- to jog my memory about those moments where she seemed to have everything at her disposal and i came to find out that she had planned ahead like a lot my dad and myself i would say i also fit into this category we're not really planners so if it <laughs> had not been for my mom being such a good planner i probably would never even have noticed that little trick and tip that she, she had used. She had cups, all kinds of different things with her. For some reason, she often had two tips, which were ever useful for huh. many different things. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I did, try to, I did try to use a lot of my own experiences when I, when I thought about things like that.
1: Your own parents are still alive, right? They are. And are they in Jersey?
0: They still live, yeah, they still live right outside of Philadelphia, near the Cherry Hill area.
1: And the question has to be asked, have you thought about the possibility that you'll be caring for them one day? Or what's the prognosis yeah. there?
0: Well, my dad is 70, I guess he'll be 72 tomorrow, and my mom is right Mm -hmm. behind him, and they're both not showing any signs of anything like that, which is really encouraging. But that doesn't mean that it can't happen. But, yeah, I mean, we think about it all the time. Do we have a plan in place? No, we don't. (laughs) Nothing that's really set there in stone, and that's kind of unbelievable considering how how much we know about it now and how much we've gone through it. But I I do think it's one of those things that you you just – it's like write, writing a will. I mean you don't you you just kinda of wanna put it off because yeah. you don't really want to think that it will ever happen. But yeah, I mean like there's probably has to be a conversation had and we need to do some planning but and I also think about myself and whether or not that could be something that could be in my genes and
2: uh-huh. I'm a
0: little bit afraid to go get that DNA test done that tells you whether or not you have certain proclivities. But right. um probably I should do something like that and start planning ahead. When you don't have Alzheimer's around you and it, when you don't have any experience with it, I think it's something that you always think is going to be away from you. That it's never going to happen to your family. But once it does, it feels like it can almost always happen. So, yeah, it's definitely like a like a thought in my mind on most days.
1: Mm-hmm. Do you have siblings? I
0: do have a younger brother. He's the fourth or younger than I am.
1: Okay, so it's just the two of you. Well, it'll be up to you. <laughs> just laying out the cold reality
0: yeah luckily my sister-in-law is a doctor so okay. hopefully she'll be able to help us out if and when the time comes yeah but,
1: i'm but, laughing but it, it's something that has hit my life obviously and so you know you have to have some humor around this like okay get ready exactly yeah that's,
0: that's one of the <laughs> i'm glad you said that. that's one of the main things i was also thinking when i was writing this book and there are some parts where where gabe says things that My editor may have said to me, you know, this seems a little bit harsh, you know, why he would say this about his grandfather. But we had a conversation, and I told him, look, sometimes... Humor and laughing at the situation and looking at it bluntly is the only way to get through the situation itself.
1: Mm -hmm. It was very impressive because it was very truthful in that way. You have to have humor, and there's a lot of humor in this book, so I don't want people to get scared off by the topic because there is a lot of humor, and it moves at a really good clip. I did want to ask if your parents have read the book and what their response to it has been.
0: They did. They both did read the book. They liked it, and, and they gave me good feedback on it. You never really want to believe people when they tell you stuff like that, especially when they're your parents and they've been telling right. you you've been doing a good job your whole uh-huh. life. But you know, we did have some serious conversations about some of the, the different parts in there. Mm-hmm. Um, the one thing they always wanted to know, and, and a lot of my family members wanted to know, is like, are these people me? Mm-hmm. My, my brother's name is actually Nick. So when readers get a chance to meet the Uncle Nick character, and if you happen to know my brother personally, you might be thinking like, uh-oh, is this your brother? Mm-hmm. But none of the characters in the book really are any family members, I mean, there's there's obviously inspiration from different people and, and from myself, but but that was the main question that they had for me. Other than that, I think they enjoyed a lot of it. There are different parts of it that they pointed out to me that they were most connected to. And my dad and I are always big into baseball, so we talked about a lot of the baseball parts mm-hmm. and how authentic they were, especially some of the scenes in Veterans Stadium where we uh, used to have season tickets and spend a lot of time. So. I think they really did enjoy it, and and a lot of my family members gave me some really good feedback, too, so it makes me feel good that, that they enjoyed it.
1: That's great. And what's your hope for this book? What do you want readers to get out of it?
0: I really want, especially since it's targeted at young adults, I want them to understand through Gabe's character just what it takes to be a caregiver and how important it is, first of all, and how unsung of a hero you are if you actually do it, especially since it seems like the numbers and the statistics are just rising and rising with this disease, and that especially students who may be, you know, seniors or juniors or even sophomores in high school, they could be facing this problem sooner than they think. So I just wanted to be able to, to let them see what it would be like to be that kind of a caregiver, even if they wind up being, becoming a person who just happens to see their parents living through it so that they can understand the rigor that goes behind it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also just wanted to raise be able to raise awareness for, for the fact that there's just so many people out there that, that are struggling with this disease or caring for this disease. So I, I felt like there wasn't a lot of literature out there that was fictional, especially that was centered around Alzheimer's. There's there's a lot of really good information out there, especially nonfiction. But as a teacher, I know my students are not really into reading nonfiction, and therefore, until they become adults, they may not have any real connection to this disease unless it happens to them. So I wanted them to just be able to do that. And then, and obviously, I, wanted, I want the book to just, be able to just touch people and and get into their heart so that they understand the struggles that people who are faced with this disease have on a daily basis.
1: Mm-hmm. Have any of your students read your book? And have you gotten feedback from the demographic that is represented in the book?
0: Yeah. Yeah, I've had a chance to do a lot of school visits. And my students in my class I teach eighth grade right now, and many of them have read it and i I was i was really excited to walk into class one day and i usually on mondays give them like a couple minutes to have some reading time at the start of class to like start the week off in that in that way and the one day when i walked in they all just lifted it up my book and it was just kind of one of those moments like wow Um, but i've been to a a couple of other schools in the area too and i've talked to some students in, in 10th grade 11th grade and just lots of good feedback and uh, I walked into one school and they had a poster up that just said, keep your nose clean, Frank. And, <laughs> and it's just, just different things that, that they that they obviously gathered from reading the book. and it's It's been a really good experience talking to young adults, especially about the book. One boy comes to mind that I talked to at a school in Greensboro recently, mm-hmm. who actually is not really a caregiver himself, but he, he and his father take care of his grandmother. And his father, you know, is a single parent. So a lot of the the duties probably fall to him. And he's in about 10th grade. And we just had a a conversation, basically comparing notes and experiences and him telling me about different parts of the book that really, like, connected to him. And I guess the side goal here is just for, for people like him to understand that they're not alone out there, that there's other people that have either had this experience or are currently living it, and there's support for you. And you're not the only person that this has happened to. Sometimes just knowing that allows you to be able to get through the situation more easily.
1: Yep, that sounds like a great place to end. We've been speaking with writer Frank Morelli about his new novel, No Sad Songs, in which the main character, 18-year-old Gabe Lascuda, unexpectedly becomes a full-time caregiver for his grandfather, who has a form of dementia called Pick's disease. It's a great read, both for young adults and adult adults. So I want to encourage everyone to go buy this book, No Sad Songs by Frank Morelli. And we will definitely link on the AgeWise website to the book, and we'll link to Frank's website. Frank, thank you so much for being on the show. It's really been great chatting with you, and thanks for writing this book.
0: Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It was yep. a really, really great time chatting with you.
1: That's it for today. Thanks for joining us. If you like this show, please tell your friends and subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to check out some of our other episodes. Head on over to AgeWise.com, that's A-G-E-W-Y-Z.com, and use our search feature to discover some great conversations with guests who talk about issues of specific interest to you. You'll get tips, find links to useful information, and best of all, know you're not alone. The AgeWise podcast is produced by me, and it's distributed on the nationally syndicated Speak Up Talk radio network, I'm Jana Panaridis. See you next time, and remember, every caregiver has a story. I want to hear yours.